0: Victoria Glendinning was born in Sheffield, England, and educated at Somerville College, Oxford. Her acclaimed biographies include Elizabeth Bowen, Portrait of a writer, published in 1977, Edith Sitwell, which won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for Biography, and the Duff Cooper Prize, Rebecca West, Vita Sackville-West, Trollope, and most recently Leonard Wolfe. And we're here today to talk about Love's Civil War, an obsessive 30-year love affair between Elizabeth Bowen and Charles Ritchie. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you. First question, could you please define the difference between the role of a biographer and the editor of letters?
1: I certainly could. A biographer's job is partly to interpret and to make connections and while not intruding her own personality to make a story out of the whole to try and make a coherent picture of what he she thinks happened if you're editing a book that's not your role at all you may have to select because you can't put everything in I had to cut huge chunks out of Elizabeth's letters Uh, but the uh, subjects if you like to put it that way are speaking for themselves and your role is simply t- to put in explanatory footnotes make it comprehensible again to make it a shape and a whole by your selections but it is a quite different kind of feel it's sort of nerdish and um, do you know what I mean by that? does the word nerd happen in Canadian English?
0: yeah computer nerds uh, with a computer a lot of nerd those.
1: it's sort of, uh, yeah it's like that you're, you're a kind of machine for making it understandable. It's not creative like writing biography. It's fun to do. It's, it's fun like um, putting a watch together or something like that.
0: I would compare it to the role of, of a journalist who decides what gets on the news and what doesn't get on the news and in that sense is all-powerful.
1: Like the editor of a program, you mean, the news editor?
0: Well, a journalist who, or an editor who would decide, well, this story is going to go in, but this story isn't going to go in.
1: That is true, but the moment you set pen to paper in any genre, you're doing that, because you've got to make a decision with your first sentence. So uh, that is exactly true, but I don't think it goes far enough about the difference. Certainly you have to select.
0: Which is, I think, essential. I mean, look what Charles Ritchie himself did. He chose to take what he thought were the more personal letters and destroy them before you got a chance to read them.
1: Absolutely, but it's true of any archive. I do believe that there's not a single archive that somebody hasn't been through, whether it's the originator of the archive before he puts it into posterity, or whether it's the near and dear or the executor, whoever. There's always something missing, quite a lot missing. Look at it in your own life, you know... uh, There's quite a number of letters which you might receive. And you might say to yourself, do I ever want anybody else to read this? Ever? Either because it's too good or it's too bad or it's too dangerous. Posterity. Anybody else in the world?
0: You're concerned about what posterity might think about you.
1: No, it's not exactly that. That's to do with reputation and shame. It's to do with privacy and privacy more. I don't want anybody else to know this. Because it was secret and it was mine, and it was an oath
0: that I took with that person. Perhaps
1: just sort of instinct. I didn't want it. Yeah. For example, when my second husband was dying, I used to keep a notebook of day by day by day. At the end of that, I read that and thought, Do I want anybody else to read this ever? No, put it on fire, literally burn it. And I've burnt diaries in the past, not because there's anything bad in them, but you just don't want anybody else to read it. It's nothing to do with anybody else. It's yours, and I think. That's the true of every archive, to get back to the archive. There's always a cull made. In this case, I think the cull was to be protective of Elizabeth Bowen herself. You know, he was very careful for what he should put in front of the world's eyes, or leave the world's eyes.
0: I'm looking at the art of biography by uh, Paul Murray Kendall, taking some of his thoughts and bouncing them off you. Mm. The struggle for detachment. This is what Kendall is suggesting, that... There's a kind of love that's established between the biographer and his or her subject, and he suggests that it get to a point where there's no contradiction between that engagement and a desire to tell the truth.
1: But there is or there is not a contradiction?
0: There is no contradiction. I think what he's saying is that perhaps ideally you, become, you fall in love with your, your subject, but you're also not deterred from telling the truth.
1: I think it's not exactly love. It's a total obsessional commitment which need not necessarily be love. It's just that if you're peeling the potatoes or cutting the grass, you're still thinking about what you've just been writing, what you've just been reading and maybe it was because of this he, she did that. It, it's, it's a preoccupation is the word an enormous preoccupation. And as for love and liking I think it stops being relevant whether... I like the person or not. It's like saying, Do I like somebody I've known for 25 years or my dog or, you know, it's that person that's in your life that actually analysing the love and light don't come into it. Very often at um, events, one of the sort of stock questions you'll be asked from the audience was, Did you like your subject? And every biographer kind of dreads it because it's not, it's the wrong question. It's just that you are more interested in that verse yes. than in anything else in the world.
0: Which is such a, a good point when it comes to talking about novels, because what motivates one to read a novel, I think, is attachment to character. Yes.
1: Yes, certainly. So Otherwise, why would you bother? I quite agree.
0: So, in, in a way, I just wonder, because you've got these restrictions of real facts, mm-hmm. you've also got the restrictions of that individuals, family members.
1: Mm -hmm. Depends what period. I mean, if it's somebody who died a long, long time ago, like if I'm writing about Jonathan Swift or somebody, I can say anything I like because there's nobody to hurt. But I think with modern subjects, the family is terribly important because they're both your best informants and your most biased informants one way or another. And also, it's not only family members, it's old friends and lovers. And as informants, they can be quite misleading because everybody is the hero of his own story. They see everything from a different position on the promontory, if you like, you mm-hmm. know. So that you must be wary of them, wary of what they're saying, even though they're your best informants. And I have taken things out in modern barclays, for example, in um, when I wrote about Vita, one of her woman lovers gave me all the letters to read, all the letters to read. And I sent her the pages in which I'd dealt with that relationship. And at that point he said, Oh, please, could you take that out? Could you take that out? And, of course, I did, because this woman had got to go on living her life among her neighbours and friends and so on. And, quite truthfully, life is more important than art, Was more important than my art...
0: Yes, but... Well, I, I might disagree with that. I'd say it's, it's more important than writing a book that is then sold to a mass audience.
1: Yes, and also, I think, having the tiny details that she wanted taken out, or even the medium-sized details didn't alter the thrust of the story in the least Mm -hmm. it was just a question of her wishes
0: but what about uh, for example if there had been some affair that you had found out about that was something that perhaps only a small circle of her Mm -hmm. existing relatives were aware of but may have put her in a bad light what do you do with that there
1: was one like that in that Rita's son and I go back to Rita because she was the person I'd written about that had the most affairs if you like Um, (laughs) Her son, who asked me to write the biography, gave me access to absolutely everything. There was one relationship that he said, please, I don't think I can bear you to go into this one. And since they're all well dead now, including her son, it was with with her sister-in-law, with her husband, Harold Nicholson's sister. And for some reason, the son, Nigel, he could not bear the thought that she had been his aunt's lover. And I think maybe when he was 13-year-old he saw something he shouldn't have or something. And he couldn't bear it. And so I didn't say in the book that they were lovers. But the fact that Aunt Gwen, for that's what we'll call her, lived at Sissinghurst for something like 15 years and Rita never went anywhere without her, somebody could draw their own conclusions. But yeah. you don't say it. I think you should respect things like that. I, yeah. I do believe you should.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a fine line, too, between being sort of a sensationalist journalist and uh, showing some respect for privacy. I think so. Just as an aside, my family owns the farm at Sissinghurst.
1: Owns it now, still? Uh,
0: I believe so. Oh, that's so exciting. John Beale, Dr. John Beale. Oh, yes. So they've lived there for years. I've seen the name often. I'm speaking with Victoria Glendinning, who is the editor of the letters and diaries of uh, Elizabeth Bowen and Charles Ritchie, the title of the book is Love's Civil War. One of the other things that Kendall talks about in his autobiography is habitat, that which a man loves, a house, a stream, a hat, can sometimes express him as clearly as what he says and does. So living in the place where he or she lived gives you a direct sensory experience could you talk a bit about that?
1: I think place is enormously important funnily enough Elizabeth Bowen said she thought places were more important to her than people which is faintly shocking but as I get older I'm beginning to feel a bit (laughs) that (laughs) way (laughs) myself but certainly anybody I'm writing a biography of I have to go to all the places that they live and breathe that air and see what they saw when they walked out in the morning and you would say if you knew exactly what the house looked like and you'd seen a photograph of it and you knew where it was on a map you could use the words that evoked that but it's no um, it's no comparison with having been there you write something completely different than if you hadn't been there
0: and can you put words to that? I just did better words? <laughs>
1: uh well, I suppose what you're doing is doing an act of imagination, even projection, and feeling what it feels to, to be in that place, the scale of it. You the can smell is, it, you can get, you yeah. get all sorts of... And the trouble is, it's always so changed. For example, uh, Leonard Wolfe's house, which was the house he shared with Virginia Wolfe at Rodmell in Sussex. It's the same house he lived in with her. A, he lived in it 20, 30 years after she had died. So it's sort all of changed a lot. And also, after famous people's house is vacated yeah. it's taken over by the National Trust or by yeah. a committee and it's tidied up when Leonard was there the front room <laughs> which should be the sitting was an apple store and a bookstore yeah. uh, like an uh, indoor garden shed and there were books all the way up the stairs and probably it wasn't cleaned all that often and there were sort of overgrown pot plants everywhere and now you go and it's incredibly neat and incredibly yeah. attractive And so what you're seeing, you have to again... You can never get back there for two minutes. You have to sort of see it through the lens of what else you know. But even the trees you saw from the window, everything like that is important. It's
0: interesting how uh, Kendall puts it, he he suggests that this helps to annihilate the opacity of death. I thought that was quite well put.
1: Yes, yes, that's true.
0: I have another book. As you know, Virginia Woolf wrote a little essay on the art of biography. And I'd like to just quote the last paragraph from it and get your response. Or perhaps you could read it. I will. It starts with by By telling. telling.
1: By telling us the true facts, by sifting the little from the big and shaping the whole so that we perceive the outline, the biographer does more to stimulate the imagination that any poet or novelist save the very greatest. For few poets and novelists are capable of that high degree of tension which gives us reality. But almost any biographer, if he respects facts, can give us much more than another fact to add to our collection. He can give us the creative fact, the fertile fact, the fact that suggests and engenders of this too there is certain proof for how often when a biography is read and tossed aside some scene remains bright some figure lives on in the depths of the mind and causes us, when we read a poem or a novel to feel a start of recognition as if we remembered something that we had known before I think that's brilliant the terrible thing is she was rather a bad biographer herself but that doesn't make any difference
0: she wrote the biography of her dog
1: she worked to a biographer of Roger Fry
0: she has a pretty high opinion of biographers
1: and also she's a very sensitive reader I mean she had that kind of hyper sensitive mind that if there was anything anywhere she would pick it up and get it and think about it afterwards I think in a way that paragraph which I think is a wonderful paragraph is the paragraph of a very 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 brilliant reader as much as of a very very brilliant biographer yeah. Or as much as about a real life, because I think you can tell from people's reactions to your books what they pick up or they don't pick up.
0: I think she's she's certainly onto something, though, because in terms of uh, what I've read, fiction and biography, uh, some of my strongest attachments are to, for example, Richard Holmes's Coleridge. Yes. Or even going further back, uh, there was a biography written of. The racing car driver Graham Hill. When I was a I kid, I never read that. It, it yes. stayed with me th- yes. just today.
1: Yes, but then again, I'm talking about you as a reader. How we read depends on where we were at at the point when we read. The fact that, that you were a kid, yeah. you hadn't read many biographies. You didn't know this could be done. You were knocked out. If yeah. you'd read it at age 32, you might have thought it was neither here nor there. Yeah, that holds for every. It does. Thing. It's when a book hits us that that counts.
0: I am going to quote now the biographer Desmond McCarthy, who has felicitously pointed out that the biographer is an artist upon oath.
1: Mm, I often quote this one.
0: The definition excludes work at both ends of the biographical spectrum. The fictionalized biography simulates life but does not respect the materials at hand. Whereas the fact-cram biography from the Magpie school of scholarship as compilation worships the materials at hand but does not simulate a life. The one fails truth, the other fails art between the two lies the impossible craft of pr- true yeah, biography.
1: That's very good, that's very good I think what just talking about the fact-crowned ones what happened was that biography was taken over by the academy by academia, by the university, by professors and at the same time there was this huge influx of literary manuscripts into um, American university libraries, buying up sort of the reverse of the Grand tour. You know, they were buying up European manuscripts.
0: Robbing Europe of its heritage.
1: Well, no, actually, um, keeping old authors in England in hot dinners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in hot dinners, actually. Yeah. They wouldn't have had a pension. Yeah. So it was quite a good thing in some ways. But <laughs> so they had the availability of the material. You've had these guys and women who... Um, had to work on something because an academic is a kind of dung beetle it's got, to, it's got to have some material to work on there was all this material and they had to get their PhDs they had to do their publications and also at the same time there was the um, flush of technology like um, first Xeroxing and then co- photocopying so instead of when I began writing non-fiction if you looked at manuscript you had to decide do I want to copy out this sentence in my own hand in a notebook which made you think twice about importance it made you make, make choices very very quickly you can't copy out ten pages of Bananas and so they could copy out a hundred pages of, te- of, of manuscript and then put great chunks of it in and, and no idea of selection at all and it never entered the, this is a very bad stage and I've been making caricatures it never entered this notional American academics head that it was only to do with writing it was, it was an in compilation and getting it right so that's that end I quite agree and the other end are lightweight biographies that just make up conversations that never happened uh, though there's a much more intellectual stream of the sort of slightly Peter Ackroyd that thinks that it's okay to fictionalise up to a point I think it's okay so long as you say that's what you're doing well and you we
0: don't know for example Boswell's sure. capturing of Johnson he didn't have one of
1: those little machines you've got did he? No. he probably didn't have total recall either I dare say he did scribble when he got home at night, but, no, oh,
0: of course. Two more uh, questions, just in, in winding down. There is a school of thought that eschews biography in the analysis of works by...
1: My mind wandered. Will you start that again? Yes. <laughs> yeah,
0: <not at> <laughs> I was having trouble spitting it out anyway. Um, there is a school of criticism that criticizes biography that sees the texts of writers as being works unto themselves that have nothing to do with the life mm. nor should they how do you respond to those critics?
1: well I think it's, it, it was a very violent phase I mean it started with but the, the author is dead mm-hmm. I think practical criticism and that kind of criticism which says the text is the text is the text and nothing else matters the most wonderful ruse for teaching English to people who haven't ever read anything because it means look, you don't have to worry about when Milton lived or the politics of Paradise Lost or anything. just read the words, children and tell us what you think and how it's relevant to you today I think it was a complete cop-out of bothering to do any learning at all about anything and funnily enough, I think it's over because more and more Historical and literary biography is part of the mainstream I think it was probably a good corrective in some way mm-hmm. I mean in a considerable way to thinking that every text is somehow a direct reflection of what was going on in that person's life at that time which is obviously garbage but to say it has no relevance I mean for example in a novel why this theme now why this preoccupation now there sometimes is a reason and, of course, it doesn't make the novel any better or any worse for, for that, but it's quite interesting to know it. It might stop you going down false anyways.
0: Well, I think that's the problem, is that these critics, and they do have a point, would mm. claim that there's all sorts of connections that are made that are actually invalid, but they're conjecture.
1: But I think a lot of the, the text is the text is the text people who have to write something. They're not allowed to write about context total garbage in that they made sort of, it was like free associations you mm-hmm. know, this symbol and that symbol and this in the fifth line, goes with that in the tenth line, probably didn't at all you know, and, mm-hmm. and making intellectual connections or symbolic connections which were something to do with them, nothing to do with the text at all, so the answer is really you have to bring the reader to the text before it is alive at all
0: mm-hmm. Well I like to, uh, I wrote a piece on Somerset moms uh, mm-hmm. of Human Bondage and how he had a miserable time of it early on, uh, committing to marry a woman who was yes. pregnant. Yes, And his misogynist outlook on the world, you can see that as another, if you wish to, you can choose to, to read his life and reflect on the work itself or not. It's up to you. Sure. Just my final question, I have a copy here of The Mulberry Tree. The writings of Elizabeth Bowen, edited by Hermione Hermione, e, my
1: very good friend Hermione,
0: who has a fair. Well, it was a couple of years ago? She did the Virginia Woolf. More than that, about ten years now. Was it that? That uh, long uh, ago? most
1: recent book is about Edith Wharton.
0: Oh yes, that's mm. right. Okay. Well, it's interesting. I uh, we, we really haven't talked too much about Charles Ritchie. We but I, I should say that I couldn't stop reading it when I first picked it up I, I went. it's
1: quite surprisingly riveting isn't it well
0: I, I've read quite a few novels this past year and it ranks high up on the readability scale mm. which is one of the criteria that you need so yeah, to, to evaluate our first
1: duty is to be
0: anyway now these are essays primarily there's reviews yes. There's there are some letters and there's uh, some parts of an unpublished autobiography
1: yes I think it is published now but however okay,
0: Mm. no mention whatsoever of Charles Ritchie
1: but how would there be
0: didn't he play a very important part in her life
1: but none of us knew until Charles until these letters quite how important and she had other lovers too it wasn't known and anyway what in that book what would have been the position of it I wonder she, do, she has a very small biographical section, doesn't she?
0: There's a letter section that goes from, you're right, it's not that, it's 189 to 231.
1: Yeah, but those letters weren't available. They in, simply. In 1986? Available. Good lord, they were only available in 2007, exactly. which is why they've just come out now.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> they weren't available when I wrote my biography of Elizabeth Byrne.
0: Well, I guess the question then is. How could you spend so much time with Elizabeth Bowen and not know that Charles was such an important part of her life?
1: Because I had no evidence. None at all. Except I knew that they had this long relationship and I got to know Charles when I was writing my book about Elizabeth Bowen and he talked about her. He gave me, he g- didn't give me the letters, he, gave me, he got his secretary to type out a few extracts which were about Aris Murdoch visiting Burns Court or something. Yes, yeah,
0: see, see, you have those in here. Yeah.
1: yeah, those those were mine.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, when I say they were mine, they're from my, my biography, and he made it clear that he had been very close to her for a very long time, and that goes went in my biography, but I didn't have any other evidence, even though I went on knowing Charles till, till he died, and it, I I did use in my biography the fact that he came back to be with her when she was dying. That the, he was always there in her life. I just didn't have those letters. Now we do. Now we do.
0: <laughs> and so, by having them, he assumes a much, much larger role. And
1: in her life. In yes. her life.
0: And your your biography, it's not out of date, but it's a completely different.
1: If I'd had those letters, it would have been weighted far more. Well, I'd have had so much more to quote from because she wrote to him twice a week. My biography would have been about three times as long because yes. she tells me it's like a diary her letters you know, because what's in there is a selection and they're cut whenever you see dot 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 because yes. some of her letters were sort of 15 pages long and she's writing to him she's a writer writing you know they're wonderful letters I think it shows an awful lot of things about her writing one of them her sort of modesty she says oh by the way there's another letter, book of mine coming out next week I'll send them people yes. send it to you I mean honestly she, she was modest. She didn't bang on about herself. She banged on about the relationship between her and Charles, but not about her books.
0: Well, I hate to use this word, but it really is a compelling read.
1: Let's not mind using that word.
0: It, although it's used everywhere. in yeah, this case But I really did is.
1: find them very compelling to work on.
0: Well, thank you yeah. very much for your time.
1: Well, thank you for yours.
0: I've been speaking with uh, Victoria Glendinning. She is the editor of Love's Civil War the letters and diaries
1: of uh, Elizabeth Bowen and Charles Ritchie and their obsessional 30-year love affair.